This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Prior to the U.S. election, everybody just assumed Hillary was going to win. Nobody really thought that, that Donald Trump was going to win. And, you know, if, if he did win, everybody was going to hell in a handbasket, which still could very well happen. <laughs> um, but it doesn't seem to be happening financially. The, the markets seem to be going up in the United States. And, uh, and they're actually talking about raising interest rates because apparently um, it's going well down there. Not the case so in Canada, but what happens when, you know, one is going up and the other one is staying the same? Uh, what happens when Canada has a lower rate than what the United States does? To talk more about all of this, Michael Beal is with us, professor with the Department of Economics, McMaster University. He is with us now. Hello, Michael. How are you today? Just fine, Scott. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, they're talking about interest rates going up in the United States. What does this mean for Canada? It might not mean that much. I'm not sure that interest rates are going to go up in Canada, uh, at least not in the short term. I think in the United States, it's a reflection of perhaps stronger growth, and that stronger growth will help Canada, but it won't be the interest rates. It'll be the, the growth that's behind the interest rates that'll matter. Uh, why are we seeing things moving along in the United States? Well, I think there's kind of three explanations. They're all associated with the election of Mr. Trump. What's happened is that uh, back in the summer, uh, 10-year money in the United States was about 1.5% per year, and now it's gone up a full percentage point to 2.5% a year, which is just really a lot. And that's partly because uh, there's the anticipation that uh, Mr. Trump is going to, in effect, borrow more money to run bigger infrastructure programs, and both the the borrowing itself and the growth that may come from that uh, will push interest rates up. I think there's a perception that the United States, because of that, may be hovering on a, a position of having more inflation. Um, and the third thing is, is that with the United States having borrowed so much money and now a president who seems to be prepared to bear, borrow more, uh, I think people are, are beginning to think maybe there should be a little bit of a risk premium built into U.S. interest rates. Not a huge one, but that's part of the story, too. Uh, surprised that things, that the stock market has been so positive after the uh, election of Donald Trump. I mean, beforehand, everybody was predicting doom and gloom if that happened. Are you surprised that things are the way they are? Um, I was surprised at the people who were predicting doom and gloom for the stock market with a Trump election. Hmm. I mean, after all, a a central plank is that he's going to lower corporation income tax rates uh, from something like 35% to 15% if he gets his way with Congress. Uh, That's a huge reduction in uh, the uh, corporate tax rate, which, of course, makes uh, after-tax profits way bigger, and that's very good for the stock market. So that alone was going to lead to uh, some positive news on the U.S. stock market. In addition, I think the market is believing that uh, Mr. Trump will be able, at least in the short term, to get the economy growing better uh, in the United States, uh, and that's reflected in, in uh, their uh, the stock market numbers there as well. Uh, the interest rates, in fact, going up have been somewhat of a break on uh, what has been a very big run-up in the stock market in the last few weeks. Uh, would we have seen the same reaction if Hillary had gotten in, if Hillary had won the election? What would we be seeing today if, that, if uh, she was in? I don't think we would have had the same market uh, uh, effect at all. I think that the market effect is, as I say, largely got to do with this change in corporate tax rates and uh, a little bit on the growth side. It's kind of an odd situation, right? We're, we're used to the Democrats being the ones that maybe are uh, protectionist and maybe are the ones who are freer mm-hmm. spending. And uh, now the Republican is in, and he appears to be 
the one who's going to be protectionist and the one who's going to be the one who's going to spend a little bit more money and, and not worry so much about the deficit of debt. Speak a little bit about that, because there is a tremendous conflict here. He is, you know, he's he's running or, or ran as a Republican, and yet, as you said, preaching things that certainly aren't, uh, haven't been in the Republican way in the past. How do you balance that? I mean, I don't know. I think he's a very uh, uh, complex person. He doesn't um, fit into the uh, normal standards of uh, previous leaders, and you know, I'm not the the expert on that sort of thing. But I do think uh, that it is a new era. I do think that we have to understand that uh, he appears to be a person who takes his ideas about economics from having run a business, um, and there may be some positives to that. Uh, but he would, of course, in running his business, he would have borrowed a lot of money over over the years mm-hmm. in order to build hotels and the other sorts of business he conducts. Um, he doesn't appear to be afraid of the borrowing money, even though during the debates at a couple of times he remarked about how large U.S. debt was and how serious a problem that was. Um, sometimes it doesn't seem to add up totally, uh, but that for Canadian policymakers is just part of the problem. We have to adjust to who the United States has elected and uh, do our best to work things to our advantage. Uh, what is the significance of Canada with a lower interest rate than the, the United States? What, what does that mean? Well, I think if that had not happened, we would have seen the Canadian dollar appreciate some. Uh, so it's been stuck around 75 cents for a while. I think that there are reasons to expect that the Canadian dollar perhaps sh- uh, should have appreciated, grown a little bit stronger. Uh, but what's keeping it down is that we're pursuing the, the lower interest rate strategy, which in my view is the is the correct one, because I think we should be having an interest rate strategy and a monetary policy designed in Canada for Canadian needs, and we aren't getting the growth that uh, the United States has been getting recently. Now, of course, one of the reasons the U.S. has had a little better growth recently is they were doing so poorly before, and so these things go in fits and starts, and at the moment the United States is in a faster growth path than Canada. A couple of years ago, Canada would have been a little bit ahead on, on that same score. Does this mean necessarily that Canada is just a couple of years behind them? Or ahead, I don't know. It's, it's not perfectly synchronized. Yeah. I think that um, Canada was a more oil-dependent economy than the United States. And so when the oil price crashed, it really hurt Canada. Um, it hurt parts of the United States, but it didn't hurt it overall as a country to the same extent. The United States is not an oil exporting country. It's still marginally an oil importing country and marginally an energy importing country. Uh, But Canada is an energy exporting country. When the price of energy falls, uh, it hurts us, and it did. Uh, So that's just put us a little bit out of sync with the United States. But still, if you're a Canadian policymaker or a Canadian more generally, you have to welcome the signs of faster growth in the United States because we usually get some positive benefits from that. Um, obviously, lots of chat now about cap and trade. And of course, uh, before the two governments were more uh, in sync, it would appear with Barack Obama and Justin Trudeau. Now, obviously, it's going to be Trump and Trudeau. H- how does this change our plans moving forward if we're going to jump on something like that and they're not? Um, that's a really tough question because I think it, it goes to to how we think about Canadian policy more generally. Um, whether the rest of the world got interested in solving the greenhouse, problem, greenhouse gas problem or not, or however you perceive those issues, um, whether Canada participated or not doesn't really make that much difference. We're about 1.7% of the world's uh, pollution measured in, in this sense. You know, we're just small. Um, the reason that we were thinking of going along is that Canada tends to believe it should be part of world efforts. And the prevailing wisdom in Canada was that we should be part of the things like the Paris Agreement. Uh, 
Um, but really what matters is whether the United States does it or not. And so what we have to decide as a country, should we want to do something uh, independently of the United States in this regard because we collectively think it's important? Uh, or should we recognize something which is more of a, a perhaps more of a realist position, which is that if the Americans aren't going to get involved, uh, then it really doesn't make much difference what we do anyway. So maybe we should just wait on that and try to uh, regroup and try to get an effort that has the Americans involved in the same way others. Now, at the same time, just to make it even more complicated, Mr. Trump has subsequently said that maybe he's interested in uh, pursuing this kind of initiative. Uh, hmm. It's just confusing, right? And I think <laughs> we should probably wait until the smoke clears on that a little before we uh, figure out what the right policy for us is. Uh, are we getting, I mean, and many have said over the years, you know, we have to take the money that we're generating from selling natural resources and invest that in renewables and such. Are we getting a jump on those industries worldwide? Are we a leader in that? I mean, we're certainly a leader in the usage of it and, and, and subsidizing it and such. But <laughs> are we inventing things that other people are buying? Um, I'm not sufficiently expert to, to know that. Uh, my sense is that uh, we in Ontario got ahead of the curve on this. Um, I think it's not even, as a citizen of Ontario, you don't even know exactly all the, all the agreements were made because some of them are not public. Uh, we don't know what the situation is, except, of course, we know that part, not all, of the increase in the rise in the price of electricity uh, is attributable to some of these agreements. Um, I'm, I'm skeptical that that was the way we should have gone. I, I do think that Canada has to realize that sometimes the right thing is to, to follow rather than to lead. Um, and unfortunately, sometimes the country we have to follow is the United States, and that's just part of being a Canadian and part of uh, the situation we face. So I think we've put ourselves in an uh, unfortunate position in electricity markets. I think it can be overstated, uh, but I do think it's, it's not worked the right way. By the way, I'm not personally opposed to the increase in electricity prices, uh, but I would have rather had that, the money used on things that I thought were, uh, would think would be more sensible in terms of, for example, trying to get the government finances in order. Uh, instead, what's happened is that a lot of this money appears to have been, if not wasted, at least invested in a way that I regard as speculative um, in, in uh, environmental um, concerns and environmental industry. I just don't think that's that's going to turn out to be a winner for us. Uh, there was a lot of uh, hoopla made about uh, Trump going into Indiana and saving the 1,000 jobs at the carrier plant, which, you, you know, obviously, I, I guess they had to make some compensation for the company to do that. Trump's talking a lot about reducing business taxes and such uh, in that country. How does that affect Ontario? How does that affect Canada moving forward uh, as staying competitive with them? Well, there's sort of two image parts of that. First is is that this is, uh, in my view, uh, grandstanding. Um, I don't think it was an effective policy for the United States. I don't really believe you can imagine the president of the United States going around and micromanaging um, all the all the plant locations and all the potential moves that could take place uh, over the next years. And pretty soon, uh, I think that'll be realized, and that that probably won't happen again. Um, but it does show us the sort of uh, regime that we're dealing with, and that is something that we have to deal with. As, as, as Canadians, we have to be able to trade with the United States, and if that's the, the new regime, we have to figure out how to deal with that regime the best. I, have a little take, I take a little bit of an exception with uh, people who have commented in, in, about Canada and said, well, we don't have to worry. All this Trump stuff is, is headed towards Mexico. 
uh, we don't have to worry about any our trade arrangements because you know he likes Canada, we'll be fine. Um, I don't think that's true. I think we're going to have problems. I think we're it'll probably be the traditional problems that. Uh, uh, Revisit us again. If you were tired of softwood lumber before, you'll be tired of it again. It's, it's hmm. going to come back. Uh, I'll talk about the automotive sector. I mean, obviously, uh, there's benefits to both countries. Uh, trading back and forth, specifically in the auto industry itself. Uh, is he going to take a look at this and say, no, I'm, uh, you know, after further thought, I'm not going to tinker with this too much because it benefits both countries? Or will we see, I mean, obviously Ontario has, has been key in, in manufacturing uh, of automobiles over the years and, and has taken a lot of that from Michigan. Uh, any thoughts as where that's going in the next decade if he continues? So once again, it's a good news, bad news story. I think it's going to be the case that Mr. Trump is going to be protectionist. It's just he's not going to be protectionist on a, on a plant-by-plant basis, but he's going to be protectionist on a, on a big-picture basis. Uh, and if that helps protect the U.S. auto industry, we're so closely plugged in with the U.S. auto industry that some plants and some uh, enterprises here in that, in that industry in Canada are going to benefit uh, because we'll be, in effect, uh, secondary benefits from the, the, the protectionism uh, that was really intended for Mexico in that case. On the other hand, if you're now a big U.S. automaker uh, and you're thinking about which plant you want to move to Mexico, you're not going to be moving to U.S. plant if you can help it right now because you don't want to get in the eye of that particular storm. Uh, so maybe you're thinking about something that has to do with one of the Canadian plants or some production that you had originally intended to go to Canada uh, in your long-term plan. You say, well, gee, maybe that's the one I, I, I move now because... Whatever happens, it won't be as bad as what happens in the United States if we do the same thing. How ironic, though, that it was conservatives that, 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 that really uh, championed these trade deals in the first place. How can the Republican Party be feeling when he stands up and starts saying, no, nah, we're going to – I mean, he's not saying he's going to kill them. They're certainly going to renegotiate them. Again, how much of that is rhetoric? And is it an opportunity to renegotiate? Should that be done every few decades or every decade or so? Well, I think we would prefer it not uh, from the Canadian perspective. Uh, I think you, we, it's our interest to have stable agreements uh, that uh, everyone can uh, uh, trust when they're putting their investment because we don't want uh, new investment to come. And they say, well, you know, if we go to the United States, we're sure of that market. If we go to Canada, maybe not so sure, so we'll go to the United States. We want the agreement to be so solid that it, it uh, attracts business to Canada as well. So I think uh, it's not in our interest to have the renegotiation, but unfortunately that's, that's what's going to come. Uh, I think that it is possible that when we're looking back on this in a few years, we'll see that the, the worst negative of the Trump presidency wasn't a lot of the stuff that people were talking about um, in advance, but it might well have been that he led the United States under, into a more protectionist regime with, with tariffs and, uh, and not trying to uh, trade with the rest of the world. And that's bad for us, and in the long run, it'll be bad for the United States as well, if that's the route they go, because you never succeed by uh, protecting yourself from the competition. You succeed by trying to meet the competition. Trump's slogan was, make America great again. Can he make America great again? Does that mean taking it back, or does that mean moving the model forward, do you think, for him? I don't know. I mean, I can only talk about the economics. I think uh, it's, it's a a range of things that he's attempting to do. Uh, 
uh, as I said, I am very skeptical about the things that involve higher tariffs um, on picking on Mexico. Um, I am skeptical about some of the things on immigration as being good for the U.S. economy uh, and also um, not good for Canada, Canada's economy either. Um, on the other hand, I am not uh, too worried about the fact that he is at this time of economic slack uh, intending to uh, have a higher deficit and run a, uh, a higher deficit in order to build infrastructure. I think on balance that will be good for the U.S. economy and hence good for Canada. So it's a mixed bag. We'll see what comes out. Of course, he has complicated interactions with Congress to enact these policies. But, you know, uh, holding a, a uh, protectionist's view there's always going to be a fair amount of support within the United States. Traditionally, it's been presidents have had to do a fair amount of work uh, to try to prevent the United States from going into, a, into protectionist mode. And now we have a president who's going to be leading that charge. So I, I am concerned that I think we're, we're going to be facing uh, tough headwinds on the, tra- on the trade front. Uh, so getting back to the original interest rates, uh, you don't see this affecting Canadian rates uh, in the short term anyway, but as things progress, can you see this speeding up the climb in our rates? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it, whenever people were talking about interest rates, it wasn't a question of people thinking that interest rates were going to stay down at these rates forever. I think yeah. most people think interest rates are going to go up. It's a question of when. Uh, I said before that I think right in the short term, I don't think we're going to expect that big a jump in Canada. Uh, it could happen, but I think odds are against it. Uh, but over the next year or so, I suspect that if the U.S. rates uh, continue to go up and, and uh, whether they're underpinned by this uh, potential move by the Federal Reserve to increase their short-term rate, I think that would probably mean Canadian interest rates are going to go up as well. Michael Veal has been with us, professor with the Department of Economics at McMaster University. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, Kevin O'Leary is heading to Ottawa, going to rattle some cages and a few doorknobs inside a conservative closet and see what happens. Uh, The article in your Toronto Sun today from Joe Warmington is Mr. O'Leary Goes to Ottawa. It almost sounds like a fairy tale or a poem. To talk more about all of this, Joe Warmington is with us from your Toronto Sun. Hello, Joe. How are you today? Doing great. I mean, I'm still, uh, got, you can hear the voice there from the game the other night. Uh, yeah, it was really, really you've, you've described it well, and uh, it's too bad they didn't win it, but it was, a, it was a dandy game. It was, and you know what amazes me, and you, you'll have a better handle on that than I, this than I will, but it amazes me at how this team has done so well in a short period of time, not within the MLS itself, but just in selling tickets and putting butts in the seats. They've done a great job. They sure have. It's been an amazing year. You know, if I were to look for a storyline out of that game, is taking Sebastian uh, Javenko, the, the big superstar player, out of the game mm. in the overtime mm. period. And they needed that goal, and, you know, they could have used it off of his foot. He's one of the best. And so, you know, again, I don't I don't understand that because Seattle didn't get a shot on net. That's yeah. an NHL game. Nobody gets a shot on that the whole game. Yeah. Uh, and so... You know, it's too bad, but, uh, you know, I like the Seattle, uh, the way they had their strategy. That's what they had to do to win, and they did it, and they utilized the uh, the clock. You know, the part you mentioned, I know we're going to talk about Larry, but the part you mentioned about the injury time and all that, one of the things I love about soccer, though, is that the game doesn't stop and start like most sports. Yeah. You know, football and baseball and hockey, there's a lot of stoppages, and, and this thing, it keeps on going, and if someone's really hurt and it takes 30 seconds to get them up or off the field, they just tack it on at the end. There's something about that that I like. It just keeps on going. 
Yeah, I guess I think the part that I find confusing is it's kind of at the ref's discretion whenever he wants to do it or use it or whatever, and, and it just doesn't seem clear to the fans until he's doing it at the end. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, he sort of blows the whistle, and you wonder if the guy's on, you know, a uh, breakaway, is he going to blow it just before he kicks <laughs> it, or is he going to wait? I know what you mean, but uh, it is a great game. It is, and, and know, it's, we, great to go, for... it's great to go to BMO and watch it because it's, it's just oh, yeah. a great show. Yeah, the fans are fantastic, and there's a lot of people from the Hammer there too. And yep. uh, you know, and I, I was driving around, and I was looking for the the missing woman and her daughter, and, and the other day, and I was driving through Hamilton, mm. which is where they found them. And I looked at the first time I'd seen the Tim Hortons field, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it's nice. Obviously, it's still where Ivor Wynn was, and it's still got a good feel to it. I, I, I thought I was pretty impressed. All right, let's talk about Kevin O'Leary first. Okay. How, how how well do you know this guy? How would you describe your relationship with him? Well, you know, I don't know him. I mean, I, I, you know, I really don't know him. I don't even know if I've really even properly met him. I've covered him. I've I've been in the room with him. I've talked to him on the phone a lot. Uh, but you know, we have a good good working relationship. He has a lot of media relationships, as you know, and so I would just be one of those. Uh, you know, media relationships that he has. How would you describe his demeanor to someone who's never met him just by the phone conversations that you've had? Oh, he's a terrific guy. I mean, he's great to talk to. He's a professional all the way. He's a showman, yeah. but he's very smart. And, you know, he, he's exactly what Canada needs right now. Someone to shake things up. Uh, everybody knows it, and nobody wants to say it. And, you know, he's the guy that will do it. And the thing is, that in the conservative leadership race, there's nobody that... Uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, garnering any interest. You you haven't called me. I've written about Aaron O'Toole, and I've written about Kelly Leach, and I've written about Lisa Raitt. No calls from you, Scott. Why is that? <laughs> so, you know, you call me on Kevin O'Leary. And well, here's the other thing is that those people will come on the show, and we don't have to call you, whereas, you know, it's kind of tough to get O'Leary on, but we're trying. Well, you know, he'll come on. I mean, and not that that's any slag against you, Joe, that we're taking you as second yeah. best, you know what I mean. But we know you're well, plugged in. I do in. it under the Rob Ford thing, but for different reasons. <laughs> but, you know, you know the uh, the thing with O'Leary is that he's talking a language that Canadians need to hear right now. And and many people agree with him. Uh, and, you know, we've got Donald Trump coming in. I You know, I think that he's going to get uh, inaugurated, although the parties that hate him are sure trying to make sure he doesn't. If he does get through and he is able to you know, to get that peaceful transition of government, you're going to see a lot of changes in the U.S. And so we have a choice. We can be talking all this airy-fairy stuff about, you know, climate change and all this, uh, you know, carbon taxes and all that crazy stuff, or we can be talking about jobs. And that's what O'Leary's doing, and, and I like it, and I don't care what anybody says. Uh, the average person, the people listening to us right now, uh, know exactly what I'm talking about. So why is he going to Ottawa today? What's he going to do up there? Well, he hasn't met a lot of these uh, MPs before, the caucus. I mean, he's only met a few of them. He's never talked to them. He also wants to be transparent with them, let them know what he's thinking. And he may lead them, you know. Obviously, the party will have to decide that. It's very hard to say whether he will be a great leader or a good prime minister when he hasn't even formally put his name on that ballot. But I think you'll see him do that in January, probably after the Quebec debate in uh, January 17th, I think. And because uh, he doesn't speak French, I don't think he'll be declaring before that. And then, you know, if if it's still the kind of uh, lay of the land is, is there for him to do it, which it is now, and it's still looking good, you'll see him do it. 
What do you think it'd be like to be a fly on the wall of those meetings? Uh, quoted in your article as saying, uh, you know, he's there to help them. Uh, obviously, he doesn't want to be, uh, I'm guessing that's a direct comparison to Trump. He doesn't want to be as disruptive to the party as, as what Trump was to the Republican Party. He, he wants to do it with a little bit more love than that. Uh, what do you think his, his point is with that, that he's there to help them, not hurt them? No, I think what he's doing, uh, it's interesting, you always ask a, one of those questions, and, you know, there's like the PR answer, and then there's the real answer. Hmm. I'll tell you what I think he's really doing, is he's letting all these people know, whoever you're supporting now, when you're ready to jump off of that, whether it's on the first ballot or whether they drop out, I want you to have met me so that you support me. And that's why he's doing it. Um, you know, it, it makes sense. I mean, he wants to have some personal relationships. Uh, with people that he hasn't met. And there's a lot of good people in that caucus. As you know, there's 99 of them. And uh, from Rona Ambrose on down, I mean, you may not like them uh, always politically, but they, you know, just like with Prime Minister Trudeau, it's hard to not like him. You know, he yeah. he's somebody who's kind of Canadian royalty. I mean, I grew up watching him, and I have, you know, know him a little bit too. And But the policies are, are insane, and they're insane for regular people. You know, they can't afford to make ends meet. And so... He's got to get them all simpatico uh, with him and seeing it that way. And then he's also probably trading off uh, ideas and trying to learn because he doesn't know that. You know, even if you look at uh, what he said today, you can get some clips off of his uh, Facebook and off of Twitter. And that he's actually got clips. He called it Capitol Hill. He's going up to Capitol Hill in Ottawa, Canada. <laughs> so, you know, he's got, he's got some... Um, you know, I don't know. We, we should check his passport there, but uh, <laughs> but I mean, you know, I know why he's doing. He's playing it to that American audience, uh, and and uh, you know, I don't think that's all bad because it's all about Trump and America now, and where we're going with NAFTA, and where this, uh, you know, this uh, whatever that thing was called, the what was it called, the the Pan Pacific one, the, the trade. Oh yeah, one, the uh, Trans Pacific Trade. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Trans Trans Pacific. TPP. Trump. Yeah. So there you go. So these are things that are Trans Pacific Partnership. Right. Uh, many will try to compare, and, and liberals will try to paint a you know a scary portrait of O'Leary, like they're trying to, and well, and <laughs> Trump certainly gave them lots of ammo to do that. Many will compare O'Leary to Trump as being you know right wing, racist, this, that, the other. Uh, how does he avoid being pigeonholed as a yeah. mean conservative by the liberals? Well, he's not very. From what I can tell, he's not really ultra conservative at all. He's a showbiz guy, so he doesn't care about gay marriage and these kinds of things. But that doesn't really help him either with, you know, if he's going to be another one of these guys that's going to be, you know, spending all his time going to the Pride Parade and all that stuff, he's also got to go and do regular picnics and, you know, the bass tournaments too. And so he's sort of, you know, in the middle of that because we've had, you know, it's obviously good that, you know, the progressive thinking and you have the premiers and the mayors and all this stuff running around doing that. But when people aren't working and their hydro bills are out of control and they're going to be carbon taxed, they're getting a little sick of it, you know, hearing about how they're racist, they're homophobic, they're Islamophobic, they're everybody saying, you know, we talk about that, you and I, on the show all the time. And what I've always said is that, you know, people don't have time to be all those things. They're not. And everybody that I know, I mean, there's the odd idiot you meet somewhere that might be like that, but let's focus all that energy not on that idiot, but on regular people. They're not like that. And so that could backfire if they come after him and start calling him all those things. Because I know it backfired in the U.S. A lot of people are really sick and tired of hearing how Trump is racist and all this stuff. But it's not true. And there's nothing to base it on. So, you know, I, I think they should be careful there.
Uh, at this point with uh, O'Leary, obviously uh, the attraction to him is his business acumen. He's, he's a successful businessman and stuff. Does he have to wade into those social issues and tell everybody, you know, uh, how he feels about this, that, and the other in order to appeal to the base? He's got to sign up members is what he's got to do. Because he starts with zero, and he thinks that he's going to go in as a big name and, you know, walk in and do it. But the reality is it's not like the American primaries where you can, you know, basically those are mini elections, and they, they're big. Uh, this is about a party with 58,000 members, I think. And he, doesn't, he didn't sign one of them up, and they're all, a lot of them are committed to other places. So he's got work to do. And, uh, you know, as far as, you know, uh, once he's signed on, you're going to get an idea of where he stands on these things. And if he decides to go the, the way I talked about before and be like you, you see a lot of the PC and conservative uh, PC locally uh, here in Ontario and also conservatives federally, trying to sort of be liberal light, if you will, then I think he'll get eaten alive. I think his constituency is to be more like that Trump thing, which is what he's sort of showing so far. But to, to make a distinction that He's a tolerant guy. He'll go to the pride parade, if you will. I don't mean to pick on that particular mm-hmm. thing. You know, I'm just sort of using it as a as a barometer of where things are at. But he'll also, when he goes to it, he he won't ignore other things, and he will go to things like the TFC game and things like that. Because it's not just about economics and and taxes and all this stuff. It's also about leadership and people like. That's what one of the things that Trudeau does well is that you know he's so popular when he goes to things that people want to. And Rob Ford had that, too, you know, where people want to be piece of that. You know, they want to get pictures, selfie, all that. I think O'Leary can do all that, and I think he's good at that. How do you think he's going to appeal to millennials, though? I mean, won't he be judged as, you know, won't they look at him like establishment and, you know, part well, of the reason? Well, that's what he, he thinks the opposite. It'll be interesting to see. You should get some millennials on the show. I don't know any millennials. Do you know any? Anyway. Um, Just the ones that work with me. Yeah, apparently they're in the basement. Uh, they've got a job. That's what he thinks. He thinks that Trudeau really uh, is not for them, and that they see that now. And these are the people that come out with these enormous student loans, and they, they, you know, they basically don't even have a full-time job. And if they get sick, they don't get sick time, and there's no pension. I mean, we're really, really messing around with the future here. I mean, if you want to live in the Greater Toronto Area here, which we do, and and I include you know the Golden Horseshoe and all that, it's very expensive, and uh, you know, and so. Not just for to buy a house, but just to take the bus or the train. Or these things are very expensive, and you know the the kids of the future. I don't know what their future is. They're not going to be able to have a have a full time job. I alluded to that in the call today. They're not going to have a house or a vacation. All they're going to have is debt, and uh, that's not good. And so he thinks that he'll be able to appeal to some of them to come his way. Uh, I'm going to read a quote out of your column. Uh, Mr. O'Leary goes to Ottawa in the Sun today. It says, "Quote: We have to realize uh, what we have to realize is just uh, Justin is a surfer. A surfer. Oh, I'm screwing this up. Let me start again. What we have to realize is Justin is a surfer dude, and his friend, senior political advisor Gerald Butts, is a vampire sucking the blood out of the country. I may have to bring garlic with me. Uh, do you think this? Uh, he may be onto something here by painting Justin as a surfer dude." Yes, I, I do, and and you know I'm not big on name calling, but I think in this case it's a political name calling, so it's different. It's, it's what Trump did, crooked Hillary, all you know, all yeah. that stuff, uh, the thing on you know George or um, you know Bush, uh, Jeb Bush, and all that stuff, low energy, all that. So yeah, you label it, and 
But I, I think Surfer Dude is, is an interesting thing because what he's basically saying is these guys are up having their excellent adventure. They're flying off all over the place, handing our money out. And we've got, you know, in this last little while, we've had seven or eight young girls kill themselves on Indian reserves in northern, uh, you know, in Saskatchewan and things like that. And, you know, they don't have clean water. They don't have a future and all that. Let's focus on our own things. And you know, we've got a lot of poverty right here in the uh, greater Toronto area as well. So, you know, I don't think it's, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's a bad idea to sort of to paint them in that way, and I think he's doing a good job of that. What about the fact that, you know, like Trump, he, you know, he is a TV star. He's got a lot of, he is a lot of, um, he's, he's recognized a lot through that. Uh, and, and, of course, he does have the, the business acumen. But do you think that they'll, that, you know, that will work against him, that he's too much like Trump, that people will draw that comparison and say, we don't want Trump-style politics here? Well, I mean, that's the, the pushback that he's going to get, and we'll find out. I mean, in Trump's case, there was more people who didn't want Trump-style politics than wanted it, and by two and a half million more. You know, they voted for Hillary more. But the Electoral College regionally, uh, you know, in places like the Rust Belt, uh, said, you know, enough of these guys. Let's, let's put Trump in there. He's talking our language. So that's what O'Leary needs to do. So regionally... I think that there will be places that will look at them the way you described, and then there's other places that are going to say the hell with it. You know, I don't understand, like, places like northern Ontario, which had all kinds of jobs, and, you know, basically all the kids grow up there, and then they leave, they never come back. They're going to vote for a guy like this, I think, because, you know, he's talking about doing things like having, instead of uh, 1.5 growth on the uh, gross domestic product, to make it 3%. He's talking about you know getting that debt down. We service that debt. It's crazy, and so we have these debates all the time. I mean, you know, your show is filled with that constantly, where you've got the two different points of view on it. You know, you've got the NDP Andrea Horwath approach, which you know it's, a lot of times when I hear her talking. You know, on nine hundred, I mean, she makes sense, and and uh, you think, well, yeah, you know, you need to do these things. But then, of course, there's a cost of that, and then there's the other side, which is to say, look, if we create enough uh, wealth, there's enough money to go around and you don't have this whole tax and spend thing. So that's the debate you're going to have now inside the Conservative caucus or the Conservative membership, which is good, and that's good for Canada. And any pressure put on the Prime Minister, Scott, uh, is good because that'll make him better and he may have to become less of a surfer dude and a little bit more of a grown-up. Uh, surfer dude, sort of an extension of the vacuous uh um, uh, characterization that conservatives were using prior to the election. Um, when he was first elected, uh, and, and with such a majority, a lot saw two terms coming uh, with him, and many said that was the reason for, although a lot of uh, potential candidates uh, for the conservatives, nobody, no real star candidates, uh, nobody wanted to go up against him and, and then lose. They were going to wait till after the second term. O'Leary doesn't buy that. He thinks that, that the tide has changed already and that this guy is just a one-term prime minister. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I agree with him. I think he could very well be a one-term prime minister because everybody's getting tired of his selfies. He's got that one act. I mean, he still did, did it today in his news conference. It's just all these sort of buzzwords and these things written for him. He doesn't seem to have a clue about what, you know, is needed right now. And, you know, the kind of pain that people are going through. You can see, well, it's a first world problem. We're a global community. and It's worse than Bangladesh. But we don't live in Bangladesh. And the people of Bangladesh, they, they, you know, they 
places like that to come here. We're glad to do our part, and we, you know, they certainly contribute greatly to the country and all of that. But there comes a point where you got to take care of your own things, and so, you know, he's going to have to do that. Uh, he'll have to change a little bit because this other stuff about you know I'm so progressive and you're all you know need to be progressive like me. Well, there's a reality to it. I mean, you have to sit in your bloody car and, and come in on the gardener to go to work and make a living so you can pay all your loans and pay for your kids to play hockey and go to school or take piano lessons. It's not like because you're a bad person. You have to do that. And that's, you know, successful compared to some countries. So he's living in a world that people don't understand, and it's very clear. But so is John Tory living in that world. I mean, he's talking crazy stuff, too. I mean, like, he really thinks, oh, it's just $2.00. You know, imagine how the people of Hamilton are going to feel. About Real that. quick, what are your thoughts on the road tolls? What is the oh, buzz it's there? It's outrageous. I mean, it's it's basically I mean, highway robbery is what it is. The roads are paid for already, and you know we pay taxes. Everybody pays for those roads uh, anyway. So to, to throw in uh, you know garbage can kind of uh, tolls on these garbage can highways is just ludicrous. It's, it's got to be wrong. It's got to be challenged. But the media doesn't challenge it. I mean, all the media does now is record and repeat everything that's said. If it wasn't for shows like yours and columns like mine and some of my colleagues, you wouldn't even know about half this stuff. Everybody just echoes it. And I noticed that the column, you know, the, the politicians themselves, they write the columns now. Hmm. Every time you open the paper, there's a column from one of those guys or gals. And I'm thinking, well, isn't there something wrong with that? Like, isn't it supposed to be us that's writing the columns and we interview them? But they sort of bypass that. And so that's the new media today. And it's all propaganda. I mean, it's ridiculous to raise money like that. And it's really going to affect the people of Hamilton. That's going to be a thousand bucks and Mississauga, other places as well. Thousand or twelve hundred bucks a year out of people's pockets. That's outrageous. And then why is that okay? I think Patrick Brown is right on that one. He's not right on something, but on that one he's got it. I don't know what Andrea Horwath has to say about it, but hopefully she sticks up for the working person, too. Joe Warmington has been with us, columnist with your Toronto Sun. The column today, Mr. O'Leary goes to Ottawa, and wouldn't that be an interesting uh, day to spend the fl- uh, spend uh, a day on uh, as a fly on the wall of those meetings? Uh, it's only going to get more interesting, Joe, and that's good for you and me. Thanks for the time. Oh, Thanks for having me. Have a great Christmas, everybody. You too. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Oil prices starting to increase after an agreement was reached this weekend by 11 non-OPEC countries. Uh, The agreement saw the countries agree to cut back output. Uh, OPEC reached this deal on Saturday, uh, agreed to cut 558,000 barrels per day for six months starting Jan 1. Uh, This is on top of the decision that they made back in November 30th about uh, their output and and reducing that. But at that point, uh, not everybody was agreeing on doing this. And we talked to Dan McTagg at that point, former Liberal MP, consumer affairs critic, and of course, uh, analyst, gasbuddy.com to find out more. So what's different this weekend? Dan is with us now. Hello, Dan. How are you today? Well, great, Scott. Busy, but other than that, uh, better than the alternative. You know, uh, Jacob, my producer, and I were just joking about that. It's like every time there's an oil story or something about this, it's like you must just do 500 of these things a day. Well, me and my big mouth. Uh, <laughs> me, me being that, uh, what did you call it, blowhard earlier? <laughs> no, no, that's uh, not you. 
Well, I'm sure I get the odd one. It used to be that I was blamed for high prices. But, that's uh, right. Now that you're not a, that's right. Now that you're not a politician, Dan, you're free of all of that now. Exactly. What a, what a, what freedom, <laughs> what, uh, what liberation. But Come yeah, on. there has been a really critical decision made on the weekend and I, it didn't get much play, but it certainly did among a handful of folks watching this for the first time in probably 15 years. Uh, a Saudi prince, who happens to be the energy minister, came out and said, look, we're not just happy with these production cuts, which we are going to meet. And we've got a whole pile of other countries like uh, Russia and Kazakhstan, uh, and probably another 12 to go with that, who are prepared to go along and cut their own uh, production rates. They said we're going to go a lot deeper than this. They're looking at potentially another million barrels, which would put the countries around the world in a situation where probably by the middle part of 2017, not only will will we be balanced, in other words, demand will uh, be there to use up what supply of oil exists, it looks like uh, we may in fact be in a situation where uh, there might be a small, although probably not very noticeable, uh, shortage. That means that oil could hit $60 a barrel and stay there for the foreseeable future, which I think is what everybody wants. Uh, Not too high, not too low, just right. We talked about this uh, several weeks ago, and a lot were apprehensive about doing this. What changed this weekend? How how come there's love this weekend? Well, I think most of the countries uh, whose receipts from oil constitute about 80% to 90% of their economies are in a shambles. Uh, Venezuela, Algeria, even Saudi Arabia is going through uh, reserves that's built up over the past 15 years very quickly. In one year, uh, since 2015, Saudi Arabia used up equivalent of six years of reserves that it had built up financially with the oil at 100 to $130 a barrel. So they're, uh, they're about to see some very, very serious problems if they can't maintain their social infrastructure uh, and oil doesn't get back up to where it should be, where they need it to be. Given all the commitments they've made publicly, they need $90 oil, not $10 oil, as many people thought, but $90 oil just to make sure that stability reigns in the kingdom. Otherwise, uh, you know, what happened a few years ago in the Arab Spring, the uprising that took place across much of the Middle East could very well uh, be, you know, be, uh, besiege the, uh, the great kingdom. So I sense that uh, this is now... The folks have brought you the flood of oil into the world in response to Canadian and U.S. Uh, light shale and heavy oil producers are now saying, hang on a second here, uh, we've gone too far. This, is, this hasn't hurt the Canada's and the United States to the extent that it's hurt us. Time to reverse engines, if they can. Once the genie's box is opened, uh, the Pandora's box is open, the genie's out of the box, call it whatever algorithm you want. The fact is that the uh, uh, moment we hit $60 barrel oil, you can expect Canada, the United States, and many other nations to start producing once again at uh, record levels. And so... I think we're still a long way off. We won't see 90, we won't see 100, but we won't see 40 anytime soon. Uh, you, you talked about what happened here and how they tried to flood the market to, you know, to force other producers, more expensive producers like us, uh, out of business. Clearly, that didn't happen. Uh, so is this OPEC blinking, and what kind of message does that send? Well, I think OPEC has no choice. It's, uh, it's almost on the verge of non-existence. Uh, unless they can prove that they can hold these production cuts, what OPEC has tried to do here is recognize that its own 13 or 14 members might represent 30% of the oils, uh, world's oil supply. But frankly, that uh, amounts to diddly squat as the major nations, uh, Russia, Canada, the United States, uh, Mexico, uh, take your pick, non-OPEC nations are increasing production and can do so far more rapidly with technological advances. So 
I think this is sort of a new alignment between OPEC, non-OPEC, or oil producers to try to uh, to try to do what they haven't been able to do in the past two years, rather than arguing with each other and trying to undermine each other, an agreement to try to slow production at least to get prices up to a point where everybody actually starts to be able to pay their debts. Will Canada have to readjust its policy after a Trump uh, victory? Uh, I heard him mention over the weekend that Keystone might be back on the table. Well, yeah, Keystone could be back on the table. If uh, Trump says yes, um, suddenly Canada can find uh, an extra million barrels to send, driving up its uh, its value of its oil from negative uh, 15. In other words, when people think of oil prices, and we're bouncing around $53 a barrel today, that's for West Texas Intermediate. You have to recognize and be aware of the fact that we have a 13 to $15 dollar discount because we can't get it to market. Suddenly, if you have Keystone potentially coming through, uh, approvals by the new government, uh, the Trump government, which, which could very well be, uh, Trans Mountain has already been approved, you're looking at an improving situation for the dollars that we get for our own oil. And really critical that people understand this, Scott, American oil refineries, love Canadian heavy oil. They've made billions of dollars in investments from the U.S. Gulf Coast to places like Chicago, Illinois, Indiana, the big refineries across the U.S. Many of them want Canadian heavy oil because they can do more with it. They can actually bend the molecules far more frequently to produce everything from high-end styrenes all the way down to, you know, the heavy oil. But all those have a market, all those have a value. And uh, unlike the light oil, which the Americans produce, which you can only do so much with, Heavy oil allows you a greater slate of uh, options and opportunities. And so Canadian heavy oil is very much in demand worldwide. Uh, the benchmark is set in the United States. I suspect that uh, a Trump government will actually be very good for Canadian oil as long as Canadians can uh, resolve this dilemma of uh, wanting to save the earth from uh, global warming. We uh, have talked many times about Canada's precarious situation due to their lack of refining capacity. Uh, Trump, again, said over the weekend he's talking about building more refineries. Will that see the light of day? Uh, I think it will on the U.S. side, but I think it will on the Canadian side as well. I, you know, last week, a small little group out of the United States uh, came out and suggested uh, a, a small 40,000-barrel-a-day refinery in Manitoba. They haven't, uh, rather than Saskatchewan, instead of Saskatchewan, they haven't seen any uh, real improvements in the number of refineries in Canada since 1984. We are getting a brand new diesel refinery by New West out in Alberta that will come up in probably the second or third quarter of 2017. So if there is that opportunity, I'm sure that opportunity to create cleaner, uh, you know, uh, higher spec uh, diesel and gasoline We'll, uh, we'll make uh, great opportunities for Canadians and Canadian business. We want clean, then we can't and recognize, of course, that it's kind of ridiculous to say you can get rid of fossil fuels. I know there are people out there who want to wish that away, but frankly, that's fantasy island. And I think anybody who thinks otherwise is, is, is really snowing you. And, uh, but I think what we're looking at is there are tons of, re- of, of opportunities for Canadians to build better refineries. It takes money, but it also takes the political will. And you can't have this sort of schizophrenic view of, oh, we want to have no fossil fuels, leave it in the ground uh, while everyone else around us is building and building out and supporting their economies. Will uh, Canada have to react after, uh, yes, I'm I'm thinking specifically about things like cap and trade that may put us at a disadvantage if Trump decides to to side skirt those those, uh, goals? Uh, I wrote a blog on the weekend, uh, Gas Buddy, uh, I think it's actually today as well, 
I, I am concerned that we have really not looked at the context in which we have made these decisions. We don't even know whether the cap-and-trade system or the carbon system is better. You're creating a bit of a patchwork, quiltwork, if you will, of ideas on how to achieve lower emissions. And I think that's a good uh, objective in and of itself. However, the cost is extremely high. And if you're not consistent in terms of your regulations, your policies with your largest trading partners in the South, well, you're only going to wind up hurting yourself in terms of jobs, in terms of investments, and certainly when it comes to energy, throwing away one of the most dynamic markets uh, and, and, and uh, revenue generators we have in the country. You know, you're in a, a town that is well known for building uh, pipelines, steel. Uh, it is really uh, a manufacturer's haven. Uh, but we've lost a lot of that. And there's a whole host of reasons for it. But make no mistake, I know of a lot of businesses throughout the Golden Horseshoe, Hamilton in particular, for whom the building of pipelines, the building of a strong united uh, energy field uh, in the downstream of the petroleum sector benefits jobs right here in Ontario. And uh, enough of the navel-gazing. I know we all want to live uh, you know, in, in a utopia. Uh, we want to uh, wish that tomorrow we had uh, the ability to do exactly what we're doing without compromise, without any pain. But we can't make that transition over the next 10, 20, 40, or even 50 years. I think we have to be very careful not to uh, really gore the, uh, the the golden goose, which is what we're doing by dumbing down and, and fighting our pipelines and fighting the very things that have uh, created energy, created opportunities, created revenue in this country, the kind of revenue that we've talked about before, that supports our social programs, our health care system, our universal health care system, our things that we take as Canadians and that we cherish, our ability to help seniors and pensions, uh, guarantee incomes for people, make sure that the income tax system is not an uh, undue burden. If we're generating revenue from what, that which works, uh, I can't see why we wouldn't want to reinforce that. Right now we're getting mixed messages with the uh, Paris Agreement and with Canada moving one direction and potentially the United States moving in another. Um, I'm going to play devil's advocate here, Dan. Uh, you're forgetting about the planet. What about climate change, sunny ways? It has to be one way or the other, Dan. Look, uh, I have uh, done my research, uh, done my due diligence. There's a huge, huge disparity in the science community about whether or not the Earth is, in fact, searing up, burning up. If you look at it uh, from a geological perspective, not a meteorological perspective, over the past 10, 25,000 years, those who've done the, uh, the work at looking at uh, the ice cores over the past 10 to 25,000 years will conclude that uh, the current small increase in the in the in, in global temperatures is neither dangerous nor is it something that uh, is catastrophic uh, it is very much in in, in, uh, in, in concert with uh, the natural life cycles that we've seen of the earth over the past 10 or 25,000 years and if you actually look at it on a linear line we're actually going through a cooling period over the past two three hundred years despite the ups and downs uh, you know we have to be concerned about global warming but let's not get overreactive and worse Let's not punish our economy based on questionable science. So are you saying climate change is a hoax? No. I, well, is, does the climate change? Yes. Is it caused by man-made uh, gases? To some extent, perhaps. But there are other factors that might be contributing to that. We are actually, over the next few years, according to uh, the best analysis of uh, the rays of the sun, we are probably going to see a cooling-off period, a, a, a period which will actually see us in the next few years, go back into a much colder period. So, you know, you can't win with the uh, with the, the narrative about climate change. Either you're a denier or you're not. I don't see it as a black and white situation. I certainly don't 
appreciate ad hominems, uh, you know, you're a climate denier. In the same way, I won't call them climate alarmists. But I think, frankly, we have to look at things in, in the wider and broader perspective. Can we do a better job at uh, ensuring that we reduce pollution? Yes. But let's stop the false argument that somehow CO2, carbon dioxide, is a pollutant. They use those words interchangeably. It's fundamental, fundamentally, scientifically, and intellectually dishonest. And, of course, at the end of the day, it means you and I are going to start paying about five cents a litre more as a result of our adherence to what is, in my view, very questionable science. Dan McTaggy's been with us, former Liberal MP, Consumer Affairs critic, analyst, gasbuddy.com to find out more. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me, Scott. You have a great day. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.